today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Keeping an eye on what's happening with COVID-19 here in the province of Ontario, a report from the Ontario Health Coalition on non-health care outbreaks shows that there is a growth in the cases that far surpass the general population in places like schools, retail outlets, and things of this nature. Uh, and, and it's important to track this because, I mean, we get the message from the government on a daily basis, of course, when the Premier has his daily briefings. But uh, let's face it, there has to be some oversight about that as well. And the Ontario Health Coalition does an outstanding job of just that. Joining us to talk about the report is uh, Natalie Mayer, who is the Executive Director for the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back on the program today. Uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about some of the numbers here, because, you know, invariably when we listen to the medical experts, uh, whether it's, you know, Dr. Cham, of course, on the national level or, or others, as they uh, they talk to us about what we should be doing uh, with COVID, uh, they always talk about tracking it. And they always talk about, let's keep an eye on where it's happening, why it's happening, and, and contact tracing. Uh, this report touches on that. How are we doing with the, the contact tracing, with the, the, the identified cases? Not good. I mean, there's a backlog today, again, of 20,000 tests. And Toronto has cancelled um, contact tracing for all but what they're calling most serious cases. But, of course, how do you know what the serious cases are until yeah. you contact trace them? So at this point, um, what we have is Toronto, 65% of confirmed cases are not being contact traced in the last period that we looked at. So that's the last week of October for Durham, it's 27.5%, so almost 30%. Ottawa, it's 48.8%, so almost half. So Toronto is well over half. Durham is about a third. Ottawa is about half. Um, and Peel is 16.9%. Peel is the highest rate of case positivity, so the number of people who are tested that are positive is the highest of, in Peel of anywhere. Uh, and about 17% of those are not being traced. Let me ask you, on to that end, though, uh, because the Premier announced yesterday with this color code thing that they're going to be instituting, and I'm not sure that's even such a great idea, but anyway, uh, they said that probably by the end of the week or early next week, Toronto's going to be uh, let off the hook a little bit, and they're not going to have as many restrictions. Uh, if they're not tracing this stuff, Natalie, how can they possibly say if things are getting better? They, they, they don't know. Well, things aren't getting better. I mean, by every measure, things are not getting better. The case numbers are 1,000 a day. There's about 10 people a day dying every single day, right? Every day for a month now. Um, you know, uh, that's a lot of people. Uh, you know, the death rate in long-term care homes is going up. And there are pretty alarming numbers in this report, especially in schools. So what we found in the last two weeks of October is that the general population rate increases 24%. And as we say, like, if they're not contact tracing... They don't really know where the spread is happening, how it's happening, and they're not telling people anyway where there are outbreaks in private businesses. They're not giving the names of the businesses in any public health unit outside of Hamilton. Um, and so when we look at it, we can see, well, so in what sectors are the cases increasing really dramatically? Well, schools have seen a 67%, 67.76, so about 68% increase in the last two weeks of October, while the general community spread was 24%. That's very alarming to us. That's a lot of new cases in schools. The number, actually, there's 2,000 cases in schools now since um, September. Um, and, uh, and so what happened at the beginning of this wave was young people 
were getting COVID-19, probably many of them asymptomatic, but then that spread to the 40-year-plus age group and the 70-year-plus age group. And in Ontario right now, if you're over 80 and you get COVID-19, one in three people die. It's really bad, right? So it spreads to the really vulnerable populations, and that's not to discount the young people who are getting sick and who are in increasing numbers going into hospital going into ICUs and on ventilators. Well, and as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean, there's so many other things that, that are affected by this, impacted by this, uh, and including, of course, I know that this is this is non-medical facilities. We're not talking about people in hospital. We're talking about some of these other institutions, schools and businesses and things of this nature. But it does have an impact on hospitals. As case numbers go up, Natalie, uh, simple math is it means there's going to be more pressure on hospitals. And, and, and we're just about at 100% in most of the hospital situations around Ontario right now. Uh, we can't take a whole lot more. There's not a whole lot of capacity to play with here. There isn't. And, you know, part of the way that they're keeping the hospital numbers down is by leaving the long-term care, leaving the people in long-term care homes, the now more than a thousand people that are infected staff and residents um, in the outbreaks in hospitals and long-term care homes and so on. But uh, long-term care is the hardest hit. Um, Leaving them in place, even when there's terrible inadequacies in care when the staff are sick and off when they have you know crushing staffing shortages etc they're leaving them there and you know these are people who are gasping for breath they are sick they need care and they're not getting it and they should be transferred to hospitals um, but they're not doing it we're it's just devastating to hear from the families there are people now this is no exaggeration. They're dying of dehydration. That's starvation. They're dying in long-term care homes. I'm not exaggerating. I've never heard from so many families whose loved ones are in that situation in my 25 years of doing this. Um, and we don't let that happen anywhere in our society. So we're, we're very, very upset. We're, you know, the government should be intervening. People need to either, either they need to get care into the homes now or they need to get the residents out of the homes. Um, and the public needs to know full information of where the outbreaks are so that they can make safer choices, they, so that they can understand really clearly, you know, where is it dangerous to go? You know, if we're looking at retail outbreaks, for example, um, they're growing at a rate of almost 30%, 28% in the last two weeks of October. That's higher than the general population. So then people need to know in retail stores and so on, minimize the amount of time you're spending in them, you know, try and only go into places where you, there's good ventilation, wear your triple mask, you know, be very careful about your hand washing and minimize your contacts. I mean, that's the key thing, the more people isolate, the more the virus cannot spread and doesn't have hosts to spread to. Uh, which is common sense and we've known that, but uh, and we, I guess we're assuming that uh, especially in these care facilities, the long-term care facilities, that that was going to be the practice. But clearly, you've got evidence uh, that, that t- tells us that's not going on. No, and, you know, when you have so few staff, reasonably, they can't do it. They can't. Yeah. They can't isolate residents. There's no, you can't lock them in the rooms. That's completely inhumane. Uh, but some homes are doing it. But, uh, you know, so you, to prevent them from wandering into each other's rooms or areas that are hot spots in order to, you know, isolate them, in order to provide basic care, in order to put on and off your PPE, you have to have enough staff and enough time. Otherwise, it's just an impossibility. And increasingly, again, 
um, that's what the staff are finding. Yeah, and I know they tried to address that earlier this week, and you, you're certainly aware of the, uh, you know, the, the promise that, uh, well, they were going to basically go on a, 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 a hunt to try to find people to work in these facilities, which uh, I don't think is really addressing the problem. I mean, certainly there is a, a staffing problem, and you need to do that. But before you can actually attract anybody to this business and, and to work in a long-term care facility, uh, you've got to make the environment more safe in, the, in those facilities, and I, I don't see them doing that. I think the real issue is, they can absolutely recruit staff. You know, Quebec in June um, launched a program like full government, you know, full weight of government, massive recruitment strategy by the government to get 10,000 PSWs. They trained them. They paid them $21 an hour in the summertime to train them. Um, they're paying them $26 an hour and they're providing full-time work and they're being deployed in the homes now. Ontario did nothing, nothing. Uh, to address the staffing crisis. And so here we are, four months after Quebec did it, they're deploying 10,000 people. They had 60,000 apply. So there is no question they could recruit people if they only just did it, but they're not doing it. Um, and I can't, if I sound frustrated and angry and very upset, it's because I am, people are dying. It's no, it's not... It is not exaggeration. It's not melodrama. It's what's happening. And there is a solution. We can afford it. There's no question we can afford it. Um, and it's a priority. And it's just not happening. And there's no explanation for it. Well, we can't afford not to do it. I mean, that's the the, the, the reality that we're facing here. Uh, and it comes back to a number of different things that uh, that we've talked about in various uh, machinations of, of this COVID recovery plan that the, the provincial government is trying to, to roll out here. And, uh, and, and, you know, they've been flexible about some of it. But the, the concern here is the question keeps coming up, is this the best way to do this or is it the cheapest way to do this? Uh, because I think you know where the public wants. They, they want maximum coverage. They want people in long-term care facilities to get the best of everything that they need. Uh, I and, and basically, I know the government's obvious, well, we have to look at the bottom line. You're looking at saving lives here. I mean, are they, they're putting a cost on this and simply saying, I'm sorry, people, we're going to have just, we're going to be having more fatalities here because we just want to spend that kind of money. That's a, and then they're never going to say that, but I mean, you know, you're judged by your actions, right? Yeah. And, you know, Ontario funds healthcare at the lowest rate in the country. There's plenty of room to even get up to the middle of the country. I mean, we're not, uh, they are flowing some money now. Um, but they're not actually requiring the homes to, to use it to buy stuff. I mean, actually, at this point, they've flowed money that should have been enough to buy change and hasn't bought change. But as we all know, the majority of the homes, the long-term care homes, are for profit. And in fact, they're reporting very healthy profits for every month during the pandemic. Um, so they're taking out their dividends for shareholders. Well, the staffing crisis has intensified, and as people are literally lying alone in their rooms, in soiled diapers, without care, you know, with drinks maybe put on a table, but they, are de they have dementia, they can't open them, um, you know, dying of, like, lack of care and no time to feed them. I mean, people are telling us, this is right now, about their loved ones who have not had a bath in five weeks in a long-term care home. That's how little care there is about their, you know, a mom who died on September 24th in one of the homes, um, you know, her, she was, she had, her walls had excrement on them. She was covered in excrement. Her tongue was bone dry. There were drinks on the table, but only one of them was opened. She couldn't open them. She had COVID and dementia. 
um, and there was no staff. On the day she died, no one made it into her room till afternoon to find that she was really just within minutes of dying. It's disgusting stories. They really are. And, and you know, we heard some of those during the independent inquiry that's, uh, where they were trying to get some information on this. And you know, the, the government has access to this information. They know what's happening. Uh, and, and here's hoping that they're going to react. Listen, i got a couple of minutes left, Natalie. I want to, if you could, backtrack to the school situation for yes. a second and, and some of the statistics because there's something I found rather troubling. Uh, the story we seem to be getting from the government is, look at, you know, the, the so far so good. You know, the, the school roll-up program uh, is, is working as far as the government is concerned anyway. And they say, you know, the number of cases aren't really that bad. Uh, we knew there were going to be some. But there's a different methodology they use here to track them. My, my understanding is that if they determine that uh, a, a child in a, in a school tests positive, uh, if they determine that, that they didn't actually contract the disease while at school, they don't count it as, as, as an outbreak. They said they got it someplace else, uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, if a parent finds out that there's somebody in the school that's testing positive, they're gonna, they don't care where the child actually got it. They just say, hey, they've got it. I'm not so sure my, my child's going to be safe there. They, they, they seem to be playing with numbers a little bit here. They are. They've defined outbreak in a school as two or more cases that have a known epilink, so a laboratory-proved epilink, which means that it has to be two kids in the same class, even though the classes, obviously, as everyone knows, you know, there's one washroom for an entire floor wing of a school, right? Yeah. So all yeah. kinds of classes share them. They share play- playgrounds, buses, gyms, locker spaces, etc. Um, and so there are, you know, the majority of the cases in schools now there are multiple cases in the school, but they're not called an outbreak. Only 11% or so of the school cases are considered as being part of an outbreak, even though there are multiple cases within the same school. And so they're keeping the numbers of outbreaks down. That means that the outbreak protocols that they're supposed to follow when there's an outbreak in a school, which can include closing classes and sending kids home or cohorts home or closing entire schools and so on, um, don't happen, right? So they're trying to keep them open. But, I mean, there's no question. The numbers don't make sense. If the cases in schools in the last two weeks have increased by 67 68%, and the general community spread has only increased by 24%, then it goes, I mean, it raises the question, where would the kids be getting it if not in the schools? Yeah, exactly. And, and like I say, it's <clears throat> of little consequence to the parents. If there's somebody in the, in your son or daughter's class that's got it, uh, that's all that matters to them, you know, where they got it. The other uh, element to this, though, too, and let me just go back to the, what you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. If they're doing such a lousy job of contact tracing, how do they even know? How can they make that determination? That's right. Well, supposedly school cases are priority cases, So, um, but there's no there's no data on how many they're actually contact tracing, and we don't know what the quality of that contact tracing and of course, if you've ever talked to an eight-year-old, to try and find out, like, a clear narrative on who exactly they came in contact with, what surfaces they touched, what rooms they went to, and so on, very difficult to do. So, you know, I mean, the bottom line is the numbers are indisputable. They're, they've gone up really very, very dramatically in schools, far higher than the general population. That says that there's a problem. And we're, what we're asking is, well, what's the plan? Like, what is the plan to actually deal with this? And so far, the plan seems to be to open everything up, but also just not even provide the public with the, the, the facts on where the outbreaks are happening so that they can even just make choices if we're going to leave it to all individual choices. 
I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that they're doing this on purpose, but as a consequence of the methodology that they're using here, Natalie, is it fair to say that they're underreporting the number of cases? Oh, I think so. I was looking at the number of tests today. They went down again dramatically, and there's about this big backlog in tests. So, um, so I think a lot of cases are not being captured. I don't know what the quality is of the data. I mean, we're in our reports on the healthcare outbreaks. We're finding more cases than the government is reporting, and you know, these are we've been tracking every single individual case since March. So we're we're very you know we're very sure about the numbers. Um, so yeah, I think they're underreported. I, I, you know, whether that's just the state of databases or, you know, I don't know why that is, but, um, but, and then, and then also there's just the fact that it's hard to get tested now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people wouldn't be being captured in that way. Exactly. But more importantly, I think now is, you know, do we have a plan as a province to actually get control of this? There are other jurisdictions in the world that have just a handful of cases now that actually have, you know, managed COVID-19 better and, I think we all want to have a response that we're proud of. We want to be proud of our government. We want to be proud of what we're doing, proud of our health system. And at this point, it just appears that the only plan is to um, allow this to spread until the ICUs are overwhelmed. And then and only then um, will you know there be any real concrete measures taken to stem the tide of this terrible disease. Well, we're going to continue to stay on this and see what's going on. By the way, if people want to get information about this, uh, OntarioHealthCoalition.ca, and you can get all the information about this. Uh, Natalie, as always, thanks so much for the great work you and your staff are doing. We'll stay in touch. Thank you for your great work. Take care. Thank you, Natalie. Natalie Mayer, of course, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.